I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning. And if you do, please turn in them to Matthew 8. Matthew 8, 28 through 34 is where we will be this morning. That's on page 813 if you're using one of the Bibles that are provided in the backs of the chairs for you. And if one of those would serve you or someone that you know, please take one. We would love for you to do that. Matters of the supernatural, whether fictional or actual, are of great interest to many of us. The subject of Satan and demons and the forces of evil is one of, if we're honest, both fear and intrigue. In fact, the entertainment industry has made millions, many millions, with movies and books and TV shows and otherwise with the subject of demons and their works as their subject because people are intrigued by it. Perhaps partially for reasons related to the reality that we've all been created by a supernatural being and are made in his image and therefore have a kind of an innate connection to the supernatural, but also perhaps partially for less healthy reasons also. Attraction to power, some sort of guilty pleasure related to enjoying certain things about the bad guy or evil. Sometimes just simply wanting to escape reality and engage in some sort of fantasy about alternate dimensions and what we consider to be superpowers. And the text before us today contains some elements related to what we might think of as another dimension, but as we'll see, it's very real. The dimension, if you will, of Satan and his demons. It's very real and it's very serious. But in Matthew 8, as you've already heard Alyssa read for us, we see that demons in this passage are merely characters kind of set in the background of a much larger point that Matthew wants to make in his gospel. The passage certainly has things to learn about demons, but the passage isn't strictly about them. Like I said last week, the question that the disciples asked in verse 27, the passage preceding our text for today, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him, would be answered explicitly in the passage that followed it. And here it is. And I'm going to read it for us again. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. These are the words of the Lord. And we see them after the Sea of Galilee is calmed by Jesus. 
But those with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee wind up arriving at the other side of the sea, and just as soon as they have left one volatile situation behind, they come upon another. Verse 28 says that they arrive in the country of the Gadarenes. And even before we engage with this uh, identification of demon-possessed men arriving on the scene, we need to note a couple of things about this Gadarene setting. Gadara was a Gentile region. It was near what's called the Decapolis. Decapolis was a, a group of cities, kind of a city-state that was dependent on Rome. And so in a sense, they're coming into enemy territory for the Jews, though some Jews certainly lived there as well. But not only was this a setting with politically and or socially negative connotations for Jesus and the Jewish friends of his that are with him, this was also a place with religiously negative connotations. Notice another thing here before we even come to the demon-possessed men. I actually have to skip over that phrase and see that they were coming out of the tombs. Where do these men come from? They come from tombs. And for Jews, this was an unclean place. Tombs were not a place that you would hang out and spend time if you were a Jew. It's unclean. It's forbidden. So pass by. And yet they're, they have to pause here because of the demon-possessed men that come. And then, yes, of course, not only was this a setting of social and political opposition perhaps, not only a setting with problems for, their, for uh, their religious sensibilities, but this was also a setting with deep spiritual negative connotations because there are demons there. Out of the frying pan into the fire, so to speak. Coming off of this stormy sea to a confrontation in a Gentile and Roman region in an unclean place with unclean spirits. Demon-possessed men by the tombs in the Gadarene region. Now, as we study this passage together, it is important for us to remember two things, I think, about demonic activity at the outset. The first is, and we'll see this clearer in a few minutes, that they are not something to be, demonic activity is not something to be afraid of. Neither, number two, is it something that Christians should take lightly. Both of these things have to be true at the same time for us. Now, I enjoy fictional entertainment in settings with supernatural and fantastical elements just as much as the next guy. But I think it is important for Christians to acknowledge that we must have a measure of prudence and caution when it comes to these things. Friends, might it be that the evil one and his minions, his demons, delight in our culture's desensitization to the supernatural? You're not going to hear me say that Christians shouldn't read or watch or enjoy stories like The Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or Narnia or other works of fiction set in fantastical worlds. In fact, I think those examples that I just shared and others could even be used by God for our good. But may it never be the case that the forces of evil, which are very real, would take a kind of joy or delight in the people of God's desensitization to the supernatural. So I hope having this passage before us today will also serve as a helpful reminder that the evil one is real, his forces are real, and they are dangerous. 
not to be taken lightly, but that they're also defeated by King Jesus. And so here we have these two demon-possessed men, and right at the start, I think an observation needs to be made about one potential controversial question that could be raised about these verses. In the parallel accounts of this incident that you find in Mark 5, 1 and Luke 8, 28, there's only one demon-possessed man. And some consider this to be an inconsistency or an error, therefore calling into question the reliability and inerrancy of Scripture. But I want to say that actually that doesn't pose a problem for us at all. To me, it's no different than if I happened to need to go to King Supers today and saw both Paul and Tara there this afternoon and wound up chatting with Paul for a few minutes and then came home and told Kate I had seen Paul and talked with him for a few minutes, even though Tara was there and didn't mention her. Particularly if the point of my story was something focused on something that Paul and I talked about. So there is more that can be said about this, but in case that question comes to your mind right here at the beginning, I don't want you to be distracted by, hey, I know Mark says there's only one and Luke says there's only one. I don't think that's a problem at all for us regarding the inerrancy and reliability and infallibility of the Scriptures. Okay, so back to the details of this story that Matthew writes. This is the first description of an exorcism in Matthew. You might be thinking of chapter 8, verse 16, and when it talks about uh, bringing healing and casting out demons to people. And we actually said at the time that those may or may not actually be real exorcisms or what people regarded to be unclean spirits because of sickness within them that might not have had anything to do at all with demonic oppression. But either way, this is explicitly a real detailed exorcism story, the first of its kind in Matthew. And in it, we see a direct confrontation between two spiritual forces, two spiritual authorities. That's important. And in this confrontation of spiritual, supernatural authority, we see three results. The first, right at the beginning, is this acknowledgement of Jesus' authority. You see that in these first several verses, verses 28 all the way to 31. The demon-possessed men come out of the tombs where they are staying, and they immediately confront Jesus with words that identify him as the Son of God. And that is exactly what I meant last week when I said that this question of the disciples, what sort of man is this, would be answered explicitly in this passage. And isn't it sort of ironic that it's demons who say it explicitly? They call him O Son of God, in verse 29. That's the answer to the question. What sort of man is this? Matthew records in the verse previous this question in response to Jesus' miraculous display of power and authority over creation. And then immediately in the next story, just a couple of sentences later, Matthew records the answer coming from demons. What sort of man is this? He's the Son of God. He's God the Son. He's God's chosen one. He is the beloved servant, Messiah of God, come to save His people. An 11th century theologian said it this way, named Theophylact. Brandon and Sarah, I think if you have a boy, 
You might consider Theophylact as a name. (laughs) Call him Theo, you know. He said this, while the men on the boat are doubting what manner of man this is, that even the winds and seas obey him, the demons come to tell them. And so the authority of Jesus is first acknowledged by these demons' use of his divine identity, his title as the second person of the triune God. And then next it's acknowledged by two inquiries. The first comes in verse 29. Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? You could say they're saying, Oh no! What are you doing here? It's not time for the torment yet, is it? Matthew clearly wants us to know what demons have always known, which is that Jesus has authority over them. It's amazing to think about what's happening here. These two men have been tormented by demons for some time, long enough so that this region where they lived was known as a place that people shouldn't go. You see that in uh, the very end of verse 28. It was a place so fierce that no one could pass that way. And so it's amazing to think about what's going on here. It was too dangerous because of this demonic activity. Who knows what sort of specific or terrible havoc these demon-possessed men might have caused and or constantly threatened. And yet, when Jesus arrives, they melt in fear. Oh, please, not yet! That's the first inquiry. The second one is in verse 31, where they say, the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. In other words, we're begging you, will you let us go over here? Isn't it interesting? James would later say that even the demons believe and shudder. The demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They shudder at His authority and power. They realize they've got to beg Him to let them do what they want to do. But it's also interesting that there is therefore a difference between a demonic belief in Christ and true saving belief. The demon's belief is not one of embracing, submitting, accepting his authority, but rather a belief of a sort of an intellectual acquiescence to the reality of Jesus' existence and evident power. They know he's real, and so they believe in that sense, but they don't embrace him. They reject Him. They hate Him. So they're not believers in the sense that we might use that word. The demons say even that Jesus is the Son of God. But Jesus' disciples, including some of these ones with Him at this very moment, would later not just say it, but see it and embrace it. They ask Jesus, these demons do, have you come here to torment us before the time. So we must ask the question, what is the the time that the demons are referring to here? 
It's a phrase that simply means in the original literal Greek translation, before the proper time, the appointed time, the specific time. It is an acknowledgement on their part of the fact that their time is limited. They acknowledge that an end is coming, that their influence, their power is not limitless or eternal. They have only got a window, so to speak, of opportunity. Just a certain amount of time before their time comes to an end for them to wreak havoc on those that they hate and oppose before the Messiah judges them. And Jesus is that Messiah, and they know it. And his arrival in their presence is a kind of signal to them that the beginning of the end has come. To put it the way one author I read, R.T. France, puts it, Jesus has come to begin his cleanup of the forces of evil. And the demons recognize that Jesus is the second person of the triune God to whom they uh, must submit in that sense that his presence is trouble for them. And so they also ask him, in fact, they beg him, they plead with him to allow them into a herd of pigs nearby. And Mark tells us in his account that there were actually 2,000 pigs. Now what that number has to do with the possible number of demons that were actually present inside these two men, we're not told, we're left only to speculate the precise number, although in Mark 5... They're identified as having the name Legion, for we are many. The point, though, here for us to see is that they asked permission. The demons needed Jesus' permission to go into these pigs. It was an acknowledgement of Jesus' authority. They realized They acknowledged that Jesus is the Son of God with all authority and in complete and total control. And these demons knew they could not just move about willy-nilly in His presence. They needed His permission. And so we see clearly here that the powers of darkness, the forces of evil, demons, are no match for God's Son. And that this Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God the creator of the world, the king of kings, the chosen Messiah, even the demons identified it. So they needed his permission. They asked for his permission. Both of these things, this, this outcry of fear and terror, this request for permission are the acknowledgement of Jesus's authority. They know, they acknowledge that he is their judge And they are apparently just desperately hoping that that day when this occurred was not the that day that was coming when they would be eternally tormented and they would no longer wreak havoc on anyone. They know, they acknowledge that everything is subject to His will. The second result of this confrontation of spiritual authorities is seen in what happens next in verse 32 this demonstration of Jesus' authority. The demons acknowledged it, and now Jesus demonstrates it. 
Now, I'll just say right here at the beginning that I believe this event, this casting out of the demons on Jesus' part, is an intentional display of Jesus' eschatological power, showing that the kingdom was indeed dawning, that the evil one's forces were experiencing this royal opposition of the true king. And so Jesus grants them here in the text their request, and they enter into these many pigs in verse 30. It says there are many pigs feeding at some distance. They beg him, if you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And in verse 32, he said to them, go. They enter into these pigs, and then chaos breaks out. After the demons enter their new home, so to speak, these pigs, the second part of verse 32 happens. They went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. You remember this word we've talked about before. In the middle of verse 32, you see it. Behold. This is an intentional choice of the author, Matthew, to draw specific attention to what's happening. I've said it before, it's kind of like saying, and wait till you hear this, or and check this out, or pay attention. And so Matthew wants his readers to note this carefully, to pay attention to what happens to these pigs after Jesus says, go. And what is it that happens? They drown. Now this leads to many more questions. What exactly is going on here? Pigs can swim. Why are they drowning? What does this all have to do, if anything, with the fact that demons had been sent into them? Are these pigs being killed by the demons? Or is Jesus killing these demons through the drowning of the pigs? Is Jesus, therefore, being cruel to animals? Some ask. And frankly, the scholars and commentators that I read this week are divided. D.A. Carson doesn't think that Jesus is sending demon pigs into the water as a form of judgment because the text doesn't explicitly identify it as such. And R.T. France basically agrees. He says that Jesus is not, excuse me, Mark, I'll get it eventually, Matthew is not mentioning this stampede and the death of the pigs as an indication of judgment from Jesus, but merely as visual evidence that the exorcism worked that the demons had left the men. But Doug O'Donnell says that this is, in fact, an instance of judgment and that the death of the pigs was an act of Jesus' judgment on the demons and that their drowning in the sea was even a kind of foreshadowing, a taste of the coming ultimate destruction of all evil in the abyss of eternal punishment. And John Piper agrees. He says that the demons would not have asked to be sent into the pigs and then suddenly run down the hill and drown themselves. He says they're trying to get to a new place to live and do some more damage, not just go kill themselves in the sea. And so Piper concludes that the demons are getting exactly what they feared, judgment from Jesus. And so when they say, oh no, is it the time? Jesus says, go and kills them. I could be wrong, but I think I tend to side with Piper and O'Donnell here. It makes sense to me that, G, that Mark... Oh my word, I did the exact same thing again. 
I must be tired or something. That Matthew wants our attention to be on this drowning very deliberately and thus the word behold. I think Matthew wants us to be amazed at this. And if Matthew's point here is to continue to build his case that Jesus is the authoritative Son of God, the promised Messiah, pointing to this judgment of demons would certainly make sense as something for him to do as he builds his case. But regardless of where exactly you land on the question of exactly what's happening with these these pigs, I think we can all agree That it's a beautiful thing that all Jesus does is speak the word go. And it happens. It reminds me of the end of the hymn that uh, I think we're going to sing next week. Because next week is Reformation Sunday. A mighty fortress is our God. Do you remember at the very end one of one of the stanzas? One little word shall fell him. Speaking of the evil one. No matter what specific conclusions you come to regarding this complicated matter of the pigs, one thing is clear. King Jesus has arrived, and he is getting his hands dirty on his mission. Literally dirty. He's confronting unclean spirits in an unclean place, and even employing unclean to the Jews, animals, to deal with these demons. Pigs and tombs and demons. Jesus is getting his hands dirty. And apparently Matthew isn't worried about the details of what exactly was going on with these pigs, whether as a judgment on the demons or an action of the demons causing trouble, nor is he focused on potential questions on the ethical treatment of animals and how that plays into this story. Matthew's purpose continues to be to put forward evidence that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And in fact, what Matthew deliberately includes instead of an explanation with more detail about these pigs and their situation is the response of the Gentile people in that region. And that's the third result of this confrontation between two spiritual authorities. And it's tragic. It's a rejection of Jesus' authority. Read it again. The herdsmen, after this whole thing with the pigs, the herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, so Matthew's saying again, look at this, all the city came out to meet him, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave. This doesn't really feel like a win. It feels tragic. Let's look a little closer. Several observations. The first observation is that this was a clue for us and for the original readers of Matthew's gospel into God's plan to bring salvation and deliverance to the Gentiles. This is an instance where Jesus is reaching into the Gentile world, this region of the Decapolis, this Hellenistic Roman city state, and demonstrating You could say briefly here, but demonstrating that his mission includes all peoples, not only the Jews. And that's what, in fact, Matthew will identify as the conclusion to this whole gospel at the end of chapter 28, where he would record Jesus saying to go to all peoples and make disciples. 
Of course, that theme would then blossom and become abundantly clear throughout the rest of the New Testament. So that's the first observation. There's Gentile ministry mission clues happening here. The second observation is that I think these final verses are actually helpful for us in understanding this whole ordeal with the pigs. Interestingly, look at verse 33. Second half of it. The herdsmen leave, they go into the city, and they tell everybody what has happened, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And so in other words, these herdsmen saw and acknowledged the delivering, liberating, healing power of Jesus. They relay it to the city And what does the city say in response? Verse 34, they beg Jesus to leave. They come and meet him and they say, please go away. What in the world is going on here? Why? They heard from the herdsmen, especially what had happened to these demon-possessed men in their region. That's good news. And the city says, leave please, not That's awesome. Thank you for saving these men. Jesus has brought about an amazing and miraculous thing in this Gentile region. He has freed two men who were for some time troubled and possessed by demons to the extent that it was a known thing in the community. But in so doing, he has also brought about the destruction of a lot of pigs. And by the way, isn't that what Jesus does? He demonstrates his authority. He conquers the forces of the evil one. He sets their prisoners free. He demonstrates his authority as the promised Savior to the Jew and also to the Greek. But as he does this, he also forces people into a confrontation with a choice. Choose him or choose this world. I think that's a big part of what's happening here. Choose joy and satisfaction found in material wealth and success, such as you might have with a herd of pigs, or in the saving power of Jesus. It's what I think part of the plan was here with the pigs. He saves these men, but at the cost of a herd of pigs. And these were the source of material wealth for some in that region, a kind of earthly security and material hope. And when the herdsmen who see the whole thing go and tell everyone in the city about what has just happened, especially about the demon-possessed men, the city says, no thanks. Go away. It seems to be that this city chooses the love of money over love for Jesus. Maybe even love for others if their desire to cast out this exorcist included a disregard for the men of the community that he had just saved. And so to me, this is just utterly astonishing. The city begs Jesus, the life-giving, devil-defeating, hope-bringing Jesus, to leave The great Messiah, the promised one, the king has come to bring salvation, but these Gentiles cast him out. 
And this, of course, only further demonstrates how in need of a Savior they are. Apparently, it seems as if part of what we are to take away from this is that they cared more about profit margins than the two men in their region that were freed from demon possession. And so what I conclude about this whole pig situation is that it's a multifaceted one. It's a visible demonstration of Jesus' power. Yes and amen. Clearly the demons left these men and went into the pigs. It's also that, I think, that the demons had uh, experienced, were experiencing divine judgment. And a revelation, therefore, third of the people's hearts when their earthly possessions were lost as a result of the king's work. D.A. Carson says they preferred pigs to persons and swine to Savior. And so we see that just like the Jews were already beginning to do and would eventually do fully in rejecting their very own promised Messiah, the Gentiles were also rejecting this man that they apparently considered to be a, a troublemaker. And that's the third observation I have here. It's consistent with what Isaiah had prophesied. He was despised and rejected by men, Jew and Gentile. The glorious Savior, the King of kings, come to bring good news to the poor, to rescue the captive, to set sinners free, is cast out. The title, Son of God, is used nine times in Matthew's Gospel. But not every time that it is used is it used positively. Just like as is the case here with this episode with the demon-possessed men. But the last use of this phrase in Matthew comes when Jesus is hanging on the cross. The final rejection of Jesus was played out in gruesome detail and in ultimate fashion. And some at that moment said to him there mockingly, Son of God, if you're the Son of God, come down from that cross. And so over and over again, Matthew in his gospel wants his readers to see that Jesus really is the Son of God and that men rejected him. But he also wants us to see that they shouldn't. They shouldn't reject him like demons. They shouldn't reject him like the Gentiles did in this story. They shouldn't reject him like those who were taunting him as he was dying. Rather, my friends, what Matthew wants us to see here is the glory of the power and authority of the Son of God and worship him. Instead of leveraging his status as the Son of God to strategically and powerfully show off his identity, he carried out a mission of sacrificial service as the Son of God all the way to a cross. Even when people rejected him, even when people taunted him, even when the evil one personally approached him in his temptation in the wilderness to tempt him to leverage his identity as the Son of God, to dismiss his suffering on his mission to fulfill all righteousness, even when he reached into people's lives with compassion and power to deliver them from evil, and they rejected him. 
This exorcism in Matthew 8 is powerful. But what about the exorcism that took place on Calvary? 1 John 3, the second part of verse 8, John says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And friends, I have good news for you. The works of the devil, yes, the devil himself, has been dealt with at the cross. That's why. While we take Satan and his minions seriously, we don't fear him because we take Jesus seriously. It would be a great place for an amen, wouldn't it? He is the Son of God who rules over all things. He judges evil. He saves His people. The fourth observation in these several, last several verses here. Notice that Matthew says that the demons begged Jesus to let them move on to some pigs. And then look at what word Matthew uses to describe the response of the townspeople. They begged him to leave their region. The demons begged Jesus to let them live on doing their thing, but in some pigs. And the townspeople begged Jesus to let them live on maximizing their wealth despite the glorious reality of these two men being freed from demon possession. I can't say it with certainty, but it seems to me that this may be a deliberate word choice on the part of Matthew to, to make a point, to show these devilish parallels between the demon's response and the people's response to Jesus' authority. As if Matthew is saying here to his readers, just as the demons begged Jesus to leave them alone, the people of the city begged him to leave them alone. Rejecting Jesus is demonic. And so, even though, as I said earlier, Christians need to take the devil, his demons, their power, seriously, we need to understand, brothers and sisters, most of all from this passage, that the devil and his forces are defeated. And not fear. We live in a cultural moment where in my observation, many in the conservative evangelical church are very afraid of what the evil one and his forces are up to. At least in the spheres I move around in. I see this a lot. And I think part of the message of this passage today is that we need some more confidence in Jesus' authority and less fear of the enemy. And I'm certainly not saying, I've already said it multiple times, so I hope you've heard me, certainly not saying that there is no need for prudence or for caution or for wisdom or for discernment, but I am saying that followers of Jesus not be freaked out or worked up about what the evil one or his forces are doing. Be wise, be shrewd, but do not fear. You do not need to be afraid of the agenda of the progressives that indeed has some evil in it. You do not need to be afraid of the effect that critical theory is having in our world. There is some evil in there. 
but you do not need to be afraid of it. And you do not need to be afraid of what might happen to this church or any other church at the hands of the evil one and his forces. And in fact, if you're going to have anything akin to a godly sort of concern or fear, if you want to use that word, of what the powers of darkness might be doing, it should probably be about what he is doing that you might not think he is doing. Because he's sneaky. Scripture says he's like a roaring lion on the prowl. He's not coming at his enemies on a full frontal assault. He's coming in the shadows. He's sneaking between the tall grass, ready to pounce. So he's more likely using division in the church than the Democrats in the Capitol to cause destruction. He's more likely using petty disagreements around secondary or third order issues in the body of Christ to stir up distrust, unrest, discouragement, and division. But my friends, even as we watch out, even as we seek to not be desensitized, rest assured, brothers and sisters, the evil one is not winning and he will not win. Jesus shows up to a bunch of demons and they are freaked out because the Son of God has come. He has power over the demons and the devil that have been sent into the world to wreak havoc. So rejoice. Be glad. Press on in faith in your walk. Have strength. Have confidence. Have zeal. Have hope. Be vigilant to stand against Him. Remain on your guard Be bold with the truth. Be wise with how you interact in this world. But don't be afraid. And so what is this passage telling us about demons and about Satan and his power? It's telling us that they are nothing compared to the power and presence of Jesus. And in fact, Matthew isn't really even telling us a story that's primarily about demons. He is telling us something else. He he wants us to understand that Jesus is the Son of God and that He has authority over everything, including demons. He liberates the captive just as was prophesied. He has come to save His people, even Gentile people. And He also, as we've seen over and over again already and will continue to see over and over again, He demands a choice. To follow and love him or love your earthly prosperity and wealth. To embrace him as the one with all authority or to reject him because of what it will cost. The choice that Matthew wants his readers to make and it's the choice before all of us today. But as you are confronted with that choice, also my friends, rejoice. Be glad. Do not fear. Jesus has all authority. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Our hearts are moved by the good news of Jesus' power and glory in the presence of the evil one and his forces. Our desire is to therefore be changed by what we have seen. Our desire is to be moved to worship, to marvel, and to have joy and confidence and hope 
even when the forces of evil are against us. Help us to this end, to live in light of your power and authority. We pray in Jesus' name. Let's take a few moments in silence to pray in response to God's word.